Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. Is that the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Sure, with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. Welcome to episode 171 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. There were quite a few arguments this past week, but only two that we uh, found to be of interest uh, for you to discuss today. First case is from the Seventh Circuit, Horizon West Condominium Homes versus Travelers Indemnity Company. And the second case is from the Supreme Court of the United States, Atchison Hotels, LLC versus Laufer. Turning to our first case, was the district court correct to dismiss a coverage action against an insurer that denied coverage to a condominium building that was ordered evacuated because of structural deficiencies? That is the question to be answered when the Seventh Circuit decides Horizon West Condominium Homes versus Travelers Indemnity Company that was argued last week. Following collapses of buildings in Florida and Iowa that were pictured on Pat's post about this on LinkedIn, the plaintiff's building in Wisconsin was ordered evacuated by the local authorities. Probably a good thing that they did that, just because if these buildings are all falling down. The insured association sought coverage under the policy, and it was denied because the initial indications of structural defect were discovered before the policy incepted and the evacuation was in a government order, which triggered the law or ordinance exclusion. Counsel for the insured argued that the policy was partially illusory and otherwise ambiguous based upon it being an all-parallel policy, and that there was a contradiction with respect to the collapse coverage. Pat, tell us about this important insurance case. Thanks, Dan. It is a, it's important because, I mean, these people, uh, you know, you really can sympathize with them, and at the oral argument, 15 of them apparently came down from uh, Waukesha to, uh, to the, the hearing because it's very important to them. And one of the questions that came in, it's obviously not in the record, but the judges were interested, uh, was, uh, well, why don't they have coverage under their personal homeowners policies? So, and all those policies, I mean, with the one exception, all those policies were, were uh, coverage was denied. Um, because it's a common elements issue. So if you, if you think about a condominium, when you buy, when you buy a condominium, you own the paint, uh, on the interior of the wall, mostly, (laughs) and you own maybe the windows or not, depending upon the condo docks, you own the air inside and the floorings maybe, but you're buying basically a box that's floating in the air if one of these high-rise deals. And you don't, everything else is common. Sometimes, depending on the condo docks, windows can or can't, may not be, depending. But the hallway, the elevator, the uh, amenities, whether it's there's a gym or a deck or a pool or things of this nature, all of the steel columns and everything holding up the building is a common element, not insured by your building or by your uh, homeowner's insurance. It's insured by the building. And those, because without that, you don't have a condo. You have the you, you you own whatever your percentage of ownership is in the in your 
building for the total or your unit for the total space, that's your percentage of this building. And so they, they bought a policy to cover that risk on the common elements. And apparently they learned that there was this problem before the traveler's policy incepted. So travelers is like, to the extent there was an occurrence, which we deny that there was, it happened outside of the policy period. So we're not here. And so or we're, we don't offer coverage. And, and so what the, the plaintiff's lawyer who represents the insured, who's the, who's the appellant here, because this was on a motion to dismiss. So the, the, the uh, association sued the insurance company, the insurance company moved to dismiss and that motion was granted. Their point was, is you discovered this outside of the policy period. So it's just not covered. And so all your, your claims about it being an all risk or all peril policy and, and so on and so forth really doesn't matter because it's, the insuring agreement doesn't cover this and it doesn't cover this because it has to be during the policy period. And it's got to be, as we've talked about a ton with regards to the COVID-19 cases, physical damage to uh, damage or physical damage. I'll get it right. Yeah. Help me out here. Uh, Loss or physical damage to property. And during the policy period and didn't happen during the policy period. And then we come to, was this loss or physical damage to uh, property? And it's, it, there's a, so it covers everything. It, it offers broad coverage, true. It's an all peril policy, as counsel said. But then it, the issue is, does it, uh, it then has a ton of exclusions. That's how these policies work. It gives us a certain, a very broad grant of coverage. And then it carves it back with exclusion after exclusion after exclusion. And so one of the exclusions is like a rust exclusion. They didn't talk much about this, but there was this rust exclusion, which seems to have happened in this particular case. The the steel beams that were holding this building up uh, rusted and the the risk of collapse. And that brings us to step two, which is the walkish after these collapses in Iowa and in Florida, which my understanding is these buildings collapsed for different caused those collapses were different reasons. But in the Florida case, it was in, inadequate, at least in part, rebar inside of the building. But then if you've ever lived near the ocean, you know what the sea air does to metal. So my grandparents lived on a ridge. There aren't many of these in Florida. Lived on a ridge about three or four miles inland in South Florida. And the breeze would come in. It was a great place to have a house in Florida because the breeze would come in. And they had one of these old Florida houses. They didn't need air conditioning because the breeze just always came. Well, with that breeze came all this salt air and it would rust out their, the handles on their, their uh, doors and their window frames. And so every so often, you know, more frequently than you would have to do if you were not in that kind of a location, you'd have to replace those things. Now, in the Miami case, this thing's on the beach. <laughs> so it's getting that salt air constantly. Uh, and salt is an extraordinarily uh, a corrosive uh, element, or strike that, uh, uh, not a, it's not an element, it's a compound. And so it, 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 this is what it does. And so you can, you, you, you'll see the steel. I remember when they were redoing Wacker Drive, Upper Wacker Drive, all the steel they put in there is all covered with this green stuff, this epoxy to prevent the, the salt and water and other 
corrosives from getting in there and rotting out the steel, as had happened to the prior version of Wacker Drive. You almost couldn't see to the bottom. There was so much steel they put when they rebuilt Upper Wacker Drive. And there was giant holes, you know, just lattice of steel they filled it with. All this green steel, because it was all covered in this epoxy to prevent that from happening. Well, this apparently is what happened in Waukesha. No, no salt water there, or no salt air there, but same kind of problem. And I don't know what the problem was in Iowa, uh, but we all remember these things. As tra- what happened in Miami in particular, given the number of people who died. And I don't remember what the, it, what the situation was in Iowa in terms of death toll, but it was catastrophic in Miami. Um, and, and so a lot of municipalities, large and small, all over the country, went back and reviewed all these buildings to make sure that they don't have these kinds of uh, situations. And so that's a long way of getting to Waukesha then inspects this building, finds problems, and evacuates the building. And so now the loss occurs as a result, at least according to the insurance company, because of a law and ordinance violation. That is, that's not an occurrence, uh, or at least it's excluded because it's law or ordinance. Because if the building, you know, this will happen, this exclusion will show up and sometimes there'll be an endorsement that'll say if there's a law and ordinance situation, then there'll be a sublimit that'll cover it. So, for example, if you have to rebuild a building, you've got to set it back and they'll give you an amount of money to accommodate the setback. Because once the building's destroyed, you don't get the you don't get the grandfather in. So perhaps earlier the setback wasn't so much. I've had this situation and then they moved it to 50 feet as the setback. But you don't have to move your building. It gets grandfathered in. But when your building gets destroyed by a tornado, which is the situation I handled one time, and the building had to get moved back when they rebuilt it, no more grandfather. We're rebuilding the building. And so that cost money to to put the building in a different place because they couldn't just rebuild right on top of what they had before. But there was a sublimit uh, that provided uh, $50,000 or some coverage for that circumstance. So this was th- this is largely just not covered. This is a very unfortunate circumstance. Uh, but these people are, un- I- it seems they're out of luck, at least with respect to insurance. I-, I have suspicions as to other causes of action they might have and against whom those actions might be for a policy that incepted before. <laughs> and why did they make a claim to their prior carrier the, you know, yep. What happened there? Uh, so they may have avenues of recovery. Uh, the statute of limitations may have something to say about that. They may have avenues of recovery, um, but uh, you, you get the idea. Uh, Dan, what are your thoughts? So Pat, you you mentioned you know the front page and the insurance agreement. What I what I when I used to teach insurance law and I still teach it occasionally in webinars and stuff. I always use the simple thing that's that what the front page giveth the back pages taketh away and then we would talk about a CGI especially policy. in this kind of policy right yeah this policy is all about what it carves away right and and, and all risk policies on, on this side and it's it just a lot of these policies are um they have a lot of exclusions and some you know um and, and that's the way that these policies are intended this government regulation thing is we've talked about on this show I came up uh, in some of the early cases of COVID-19 and business interruption because people were using that as kind of their uh, uh, claims, right, that the government of Chicago or New York or you name a city uh, by by, uh, special orders of governors or mayors closed down businesses. And again, that's 
typically excluded from things, and, and the reason for that is it's not really uh, there may be losses, but it's but it's again uh, you don't want to be paying for a government regulation type of uh, impositions on on insureds. So, like you said, I, I wondered about this case as I was listening to it. You know what happened with the prior policy, or if they made a claim on that policy, and for some reason it wasn't covered by that policy. But you know, um, they would have an occurrence argument and a law and ordinance argument as well. All right, um, well, yeah, not right. just the argument that it didn't occur during the policy period. No, yeah, absolutely. Um, you you also wonder, uh, you know, one of the, one of the things you wonder is if they even disclose this because typically on renewals. The policy application and the renewal process always ask: Have there been any claims, notices, blah? You know, whether well, this whether... seems to have been a new policy and not a renewal, which leads me to believe they did make the claim to the prior carrier. They, they didn't. They, they they didn't disclose. They they I'm speculating here. They may they didn't disclose it to this carrier, and that's how they got the coverage. And then we find out. You know, you, you obviously things you don't disclose that doesn't do much good. No. Um, it it. it, it that may not have occurred because we aren't. Or we didn't hear a rescission argument. Right. It's so. also important to remember that this is an occurrence-based policy and not a claims-made policy. Yep. So um, it, it it's who knows. Wow. Yeah. But in any event, an important case, and we'll see. You know, I can't imagine. Like you said, I can't imagine coverage being found here. But no, I agree. I I agree. It's a, it's it's not a good situation for these folks. No. So with that, we'll take our first break and come back with Atchison versus Laufer, which Dan, you should have heard our call on uh, on on Friday or Thursday. Right. Uh, we've already had, we've already done the podcast. We're gonna redo it here. Uh, we're gonna recreate our our discussion uh, so. in just a moment. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back to segment two of episode 171 of the Podium Panel podcast. And instead of getting an argument about whether an ADA tester has standing, SCOTUS's consideration of Atchison Hotels versus Laufer turned into, a, turned into a dispute over whether the court should consider whether the case is mooted first or whether the plaintiff has standing. The plaintiff had filed a suit against the defendant hotel claiming its website did not comply with the ADA but she did not ever intend to go, go to the hotel or because she did not ever intend to go to the hotel, the district court dismissed finding that she had no injury and therefore no standing, but the circuit court reversed holding that she did have standing. The defendant filed a petition for writ of certiorari, which was granted, but after filing the opening merits brief, the plaintiff dismissed her case. The defendant contends that the court can still rule on the question presented because while moot, the issue of standing could be, should be considered first because a plaintiff who has no standing cannot file a case in the first instance. The plaintiff seems to have gotten the better of the argument, uh, much to my chagrin. Dan, tell us about the case and why I'm wrong. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. And as Pat said, we talked extensively on Thursday about this. I mean, one thing is, 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 
is again it's it seems to be how many uh angels on the head of a pin because if you don't have standing to file a lawsuit then what's the what's going to be the end result there's no lawsuit it gets dismissed right so she wouldn't have even had standing to file an appeal i mean it's kind of a it's very hard to get your mind around this and so my column in monday's uh chicago daily law bulletin is actually on this case and uh uh, we talked about the other two cases very briefly, but I said, uh, I opened with, in the third case, the justices dealt with an issue of standing. And the question presented here was whether a self-appointed Americans with Disabilities Act tester has Article Three standing to challenge a place of public accommodations failure to provide disability accessibility information on its website, even if she lacks any intention of visiting that place of public accommodation. Uh, end quote. Uh, standing is, 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 Pat and I have talked about in this show, and as I think others have talked about, it's it's really one of those that's hard to define precisely, especially in recent times with the, with the Supreme Court and just in general. It's a very, uh, uh, you, you have to get some sometimes into the weeds of standing on the merits to, to figure out if someone has standing. Uh, as Pat said, the plaintiff in this case, case, after the cert was granted, she withdrew her complaint. Um, and as Pat mentioned, one of the things she is a serial tester. She's filed hundreds of tester cases such as this, uh, with no intentions to visit the hotels that are defendants. Um, and and you know one of the things that in in ways that testers came out is is really back in the 50s and 60s, with uh, redlining and with apartment renting, is is when these testers really came out. Um, and there's a lot of uh, legal aid groups and stuff. I think the uh, Fair Housing Clinic for John Marshall Law School, now UIC Law School, uh, did a substantial amount of these types of tester cases. You know, they apply online. They say they're black, then they're white. Uh, in this case, this lady has, I think, MS. If I, if I may, she got multiple. She has multiple. She's she's multiple got vision illnesses. issues. Yeah, uh, and so she she's doesn't got travel. Mobility issues. She has mo- mobility issues. She has a she has a multitude of, of problems. There's no doubt she's disabled. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, as Pat said, I think I think the justices struggled with the case that it might be moot because she withdrew. Uh, but uh, we're not going to see a substantive decision from the Supreme Court of the United States on this. But it's a, an opportunity for the court to provide some guidance on important standing and mootness issues. Um, one of the things that's interesting is is I had written about in my uh, a prior Chicago Daily Law Bulletin article is Steve Laddick, who has a one first letter uh, that he uh, you can subscribe to on Substack. He cited Justice Alito and uh, Judge Bork from way back. Uh, they expressed concern about the standing doctrine exercised by the court. And what they said was, quote, this inconsistency in standing decisions exacerbates the perception, if not the reality, that the current court is willing to expand its formal power in order to reach issues that would and arguably should otherwise be left to the democratic process, end quote. Um, it, um, but again, some, some argue that that's not the case. And um, the uh, case, uh, as mentioned, the parties, requ- she requested that this be dismissed for mootness. The court rejected the request back in August in one of its conferences, and the order then stated, quote, the respondents requested that we dismiss the case as moot at this time is denied. The question of mootness will be subject to further consideration at oral argument in addition to the question presented, which is the standing issue. 
the um, some of the justices pushed back and pressed on the issue of advisory opinions. Uh, Justice Sotomayor, Sotomayor uh, she asked why it's not moot and tell, tell me uh, why it's not just an advisory opinion. And then Justice Alito also jumped in. As I mentioned, he had talked before. He said, well, but doesn't this that look just like an advisory opinion? I mean, we're not. We're not. We would not be addressing anything that is of relevance to the case that is before us. We would be addressing an issue that should be resolved. It's an advisory opinion. There are arguments in favor of advisory opinions. They just happen not to be consistent with Article 3 of the Constitution. And the advocate uh, responded back in, in disagreement uh, that uh, uh, what he said to that uh, pushing from both Sotomayor and then jumping on from Alito was that he thought that the judgment of the court is going to be that there's no case or controversy. And then that's not an advisory opinion. That's disposing of the case in front of the court. And, and again, I think the um, uh, one, one of the things that Pat and I talked about on Thursday of last week is that this is an opportunity potentially for the court to stop some of these lawsuits. Uh, but the uh, you know my punchline is it's not going to stop anything because of other cases where there's all these cases that come in on certain topics. Uh, courts uh, saying there's no standing doesn't seem to. All it does is it seems to provide uh, uh, some incentive for the plaintiffs to repackage their complaints so that it is is different in terms of the facts or whatever. And, and, and in this oral argument, it seemed like most of the justices were skeptical or, or that, that this was just going to be moot. But Chief Justice John Roberts uh, uh, was very clear. And, and, and again, he kind of talks about this mootness and standing that uh, Pat introduced. He, he said, quote, the mootness question of whether or not a plaintiff can moot a case to manipulate the jurisdiction of his court. I mean, the mootness papers weren't filed until after the petitioner's opening brief, end quote. And then he, he uh, as I mentioned, he, his real concern is, is judicial economy, not just at the Supreme Court, but at the district court level and then at the appellate court level by this plaintiff or others. Uh, he said, and you know, we, we can't sort of keep grant and cert and having to constantly be mooted with never a determination of whether they're standing in those variety of cases. I mean, you may think that that's not ex necessarily easier or harder than the standing question, but it's certainly not one that we can just, you know, toss off with the back of our hand, is it? Um, and the advocate acknowledges the, uh, the other advocate, not the one that uh, disagreed, suggests that this case was a poor one to resolve these issues. Um, it, it's it, it'll be an interesting case to watch and and. Uh, uh, Justice Jackson again referred to Munsingware, and and yeah, it's a drinking it's, game again. If yeah, if, yeah. if we every time she mentioned Munsingware, we drank, we we would be drunk. <laughs> constantly. I, I I have never heard of Munsingware until Justice Jackson got on the bench, and now it's it's a regular occurrence. Everything is Munsingware according to her. It's amazing. I mean, it's yeah. not. I, I get what she's saying, but my goodness, it comes up all the time with her. And, and so that's uh, the, the, that's kind of how the case is is shaped up. Um, you know, it, it seemed to be from again from oral argument and the skepticism of Alito, Sotomayor. It's, it seems to be a broad kind of consensus that they just dismiss on on mootness. But again, you never know with Roberts and Kavanaugh and their alignment and. If he can get a few others to at least address it somehow, um, 
my expectation would be that this that, that this case will be uh, maybe eight one, but who knows? But in any event, I, I would think if if Roberts uh, doesn't get his way, he would at least concur in the results because in the result the case is still kind of gone. But I think he uh, expect at a minimum this might be the second time he's been the sole dissenter, or he might just do a concurrence that he uh, agrees with the result, but that he you know disagrees that they don't uh, tackle this important issue of standing uh, to get to mootness. So, so let me take a stab at the other side um, and see if I can do this. So uh, Robert seemed to be the only one that was squarely in the camp of uh, we should decide this case. Thomas, as the, per the usual arrangement, or the, the now usual arrangement, asked the first question and was all over the mootness thing. So he's also in the camp with Jackson and uh, Sotomayor and Alito um, on what are we doing here? So a dig could be in could be in the cards. A dig's well. possible, but uh, yeah. But so so the question that it got, and the reason why I think uh, the argument, I, I I think, let me try let me try this one on for size. This is certainly this certainly is the doctrine. Um, I hate to bring it up, but I think it's the place that gives the best illustration of it is in the abortion cases, where you have uh, it, it's it's. Capable of repetition, capable of repetition, but evading review, and it's evading review in this case not because the 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 pregnancy ends, uh, because the baby is born, but rather it's evading review because these folks keep dismissing their cases, and so the point that he was making was that because Jackson's like, why don't we wait until the case gets to us? That is your concern. Well, Your Honor, what's going to happen is if we go and because there's a split in the circuits. To be sure, there's there's, there's some, I can't remember which circuits fall in the category of on the other side, but the second circuit, or sorry, the first circuit is plainly on the side of you don't have to have actually intend to go to the place in order to have standing. So, if so, his his point is counsel for the the appellants or a petitioner is so we fi- they file the case, we get a dismissal, it goes on appeal, and then they dismiss the case. And so we've had to spend all of this effort, and then it and then it goes away, and you're never going to get to decide the issue. Um, and so, so so the argument essentially is this is capable of repetition but evading review because there if you're just going to allow them to dismiss the case because what you what the circuit courts are then going to have to have to say is the Supreme Court did this in Atchison, allowed this to happen, and we're now bound by the Supreme Court. To allow them to dismiss and, and to do this this procedure to work around to prevent it from being reviewed by allowing them to dismiss the case. So that's except the first the argument. Fifth, except in the Fifth Circuit, where they don't pay any attention to Supreme Court lately. I, 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 I fair enough. Uh, the 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 just as the or, just as uh, uh, orange is the new black, the fifth is the new ninth. I get it. Um, the um, <laughs> so then we come to the second point. And that point is this, and I made it at the end at the end of the the introduction there, and that is that a a case can't be moot if the person who filed it never had standing. In other words, this is like an order of operations problem that you remember from math when you were a kid or in school. You do this operation first, then you do this operation, then you do this operation. So amongst the judici- justiciability doctrines, you've got several. 
uh, political question, rightness, mootness, standing. I think those are the four. And the which one do you do first if, if more than one is implicated? And the point that the advocate for the petitioner was making is you do standing first. Because if you don't have standing, mootness is irrelevant. They, the case never but, never was a case. So, right, which makes it moot, moot. <laughs> well, no, but never, lack of standing doesn't mean no, lack of standing doesn't mean not moot. Lack of st- doesn't make it but, moot. Lack of standing means you makes, couldn't file the lawsuit. It makes it. It means it never happened in the beginning, which is is like trying to figure out the beginning of time when there was the Big Bang. Where did that come from? Right, the black dot that became the the Earth. It's the same type of that. That's what you and I talked about last Thursday. Is is in my mind, if you don't have standing to get mootness, you didn't have standing to bring the case in the first place, which is an automatic dismissal because you didn't have standing to. Which is why you should decide standing first and before you get to mootness. In the order of operations, standing is like multiplication and division. You do those first. Yeah, but my 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 view on this is is that these cases will never get resolved. So what? And the reason that you and I talked about on Thursday is this court gets about 8,000 petitions a year. And Roberts is, is it's either a lazy court or it's whatever court. They did 59 substantive cases, decisions last year, 59 cases. So so what if these cases get dismissed? It makes their job easier. They don't have to, they, you know, uh, they, they don't have to even uh, worry about it. So, I mean... Meanwhile, these businesses are saddled with having to defend these things when they shouldn't have. If the court comes out and says, let's suppose the court says that she, if they said, for example, she did have standing. Yeah. Okay. Then the case, it's the case is still moot, but we now have instruction for below. And I get that. I get your next, your next, the next word out of your mouth is advisory opinion. I get that. <laughs> I get that. But if they say she didn't, she didn't have, have standing. standing she okay. didn't have standing. You don't reach the, reach the mootness issue because right. she never had standing to file it in the first place. And so it, it's not advisory. Okay. If, but the, they, the, if she doesn't have standing, then the next person is going to be like the, the cake case or some other case where people would say, I, I was going to go to the hotels. I just haven't gone. Okay, that's right. standing then. So it, it's be so limited anyway. If it gets rid of her 600 cases, maybe. But she might start saying, you know, I intend to go visit, you know, uh, 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 Decatur, Illinois, and visit the hotel that doesn't tell me what my, you know. But then uh, they could go test that, and they could, and if and if it's, well, it, I know, yeah, they, they could go, they could go explore that issue in the first instance if the court says that that's what's required. Yes, there's creative plea that can be done. Rule eleven would then come into play, um, and, and and that's part of why her case was dismissed is because the lawyer who represented her on a great number of these cases was sanctioned in the District of Maryland. I don't yep. remember the particulars, but it was largely around filing pleadings that uh, may not have complied with the rules. Um, and, and so he got sanctioned, and he withdrew as her lawyer, and then she dis- she dismissed the case. If they, um, and, and again, I, I don't know. Do, do you know what the word is if, if you don't have standing? It's not moot, but what is it? No, it's lack never, of standing. It, it, you don't have an it injury. never existed? never, never existed. existed. Yeah. I mean, th- there's a reason why I listed the the, the justiciability you even, doctrines. You, you, you weren't even a gleam in your plaintiff's eye. Exactly. <laughs> the reason why I listed the, the justiciability doctrines is they're different. They are. They, you know, I know they, they are. And they're distinct. And so it's more than just not having uh, stand, not being. It's more than it being moot. It's that there is that 
they all fall into their not a case in controversy. It's what causes right. the lack of controversy in a person that didn't have standing. Okay, you've got a, a, a you've got a a reasonable facsimile of our discussion on Thursday. Uh, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I my side is definitely going to lose this argument. This case is going away. The question is how. It really matters how. It really does. And yeah, I think we can I agree on that. It matters what they do. It um, is. And, and, and again, that's my, my column. And if you, you're interested in reading the full kind of how I analyzed it, it's in the uh, Chicago Daily Law Bulletin on Monday on Columbus or in Indigenous Day. So, Very good. All right. So let's move on. We've had enough of enough of a... Uh, it's it's a very interesting argument. I mean, it really it is. is. It's, it's, it's why we wanted to cover stuff. it. Yeah. Very technical it, stuff. Literally, literally a moot court uh, yeah. in the Supreme Court, and uh, it, it's interesting yeah. nonetheless. Yep. So that brings us to our BI for COVID. Uh, Dan, why don't you tell us about this? Yeah, we actually had a, a California State's Appeals Court ruled last week for the third time. <laughs> I don't know what's going on here, but it, it keeps going. What's going on here is the, the California Supreme Court isn't deciding. That's what's going and on. They, here. And, and not taking a case, but uh, right. they found that the the. Business was entitled to business interruption coverage, and it was a three-judge panel of the California Court of Appeals in Los Angeles. They overturned a lower court and held in its ruling uh, that the Los Angeles-based real estate investment company was entitled to BI coverage in connection with COVID-19-related losses from Liberty Mutual uh, Units, Ironshore Specialty Insurance Company, and several excess insurers. Uh, The same court had previously ruled in policyholders' favor in another case. And so these are rare policyholder victories as anybody who's listened to this show or paid attention at all knows. And so, and again, the Supreme Court of uh, California, uh, probably not going to take this case. So uh, you have that and it'll go back. And again, we'll see. <laughs> it seems like it keeps going back. And then the trial court's like, no, this doesn't qualify as, as all the other cases across the U.S., that there's no loss of pro- loss or damage to property, and it'll go back up again. And this may be an infinite loop here. Uh, and my my guess would be that at some point, uh, I don't know this for I don't have any intelligence, but but I would think that. Well, you have some point, intelligence. Well, not in this case, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've been been accused of not much, but um, in this case, you know, I would think at some point. The, the, the insurer and the insured might get together and figure out some some uh, de minimis type of settlement just because the risk on both sides and the costs of constantly go back up to the appellate court and back down to the trial court uh, gets to be probably uh, pretty exorbitant. Indeed. So with that, that brings us to our prediction sure to go wrong. Uh, we were 1-0 this week. Uh, Dan is 262.5, and 17. I am 259, 60 and a half. I'm sorry, 259 and a half, 60 and a half and 17. The case that came down was Andrade versus City of Kankakee. And in this case, the court held, the appellate court affirmed the judgment of the circuit court uh, that under sections uh, 4-102 and 2-202 of the Illinois uh, Tort Immunity Act that the Municipal, age, municipal law enforcement agencies, the city of Kankakee Police Department and the Kankakee County Sheriff's Department, one responsible for the security at the courthouse, uh, the sheriff's department, that is, and the other uh, response, or 
that had been, had contact with one of the deceased's in their investigation of the uh, the uh, person that ultimately gunned them down, that they um, that they had uh, immu- absolute immunity uh, in in failing to provide protection, and so we've talked about these statutes before. Uh, essentially, they expose this. Uh, this person to, they had a, a known threat as to time, place, manner. And that sounds like First Amendment, but that's what they had. They knew who was going to do it, where he was going to do it, when he was going to do it. And they they had him come into the to the <laughs> courthouse and sent him on his way. He said, good luck, fella. See how it goes. And lo and behold, the very threat that they knew occur, was there occurred. And two people were killed, I think it was, yeah. and another person injured. And then the shooter ultimately gets killed by one of the people he was assaulting. Uh, and the law enforcement agencies have no responsibility for any of that. It's, it's the court followed the law. The law is wrong. Um, it, this is how we Horrible. predicted it would come out. It, it really, in a circumstance like this, this is really inexcusable. Uh, you, from what the description, the allegations were that the they met with this person the night before he was an informant. They drop him off at the house. I mean, the, I, I can't remember which TV show because it's been more than one where when you see someone get out of the back of a police car, that person always dies in the next scene because right. it, it, that's like, like, what are you doing? What, why are you meeting with it, 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 like they're not monitoring his house? It, this is a, you know. They're gangs. They're good at this. Uh, it's what they do. Uh, this is not any great piece of sophistication. Uh, I, I don't understand how this is somehow tolerated. I, I, I just don't understand how uh, that, that that can be. And, and who's going to cooperate with the police if they're going to do this? And then there's no no recovery or anything else. It's like, oh, we, and, and the cops are just going to keep doing it because there's no... There's no uh, um, uh, there's no remedy. There's right. no there, there's no penalty for them. They don't care. It's not doesn't matter. There, there's no, nothing on the back end. That puts people in a very uh, very difficult situation because yeah. a lot of times they don't have leverage, unfortunately. So if you're an informant like this, you've got something else that's going on with you know right. criminal behavior on your part, and you you are cooperating for for various reasons. And uh, but it's it's. Uh, as you said, Pat, it's uh, it's the right answer given the law that we've talked about pretty extensively on this show. But uh, it, it's the wrong result, and it's the the law's wrong. I mean, it just is is period. I, I, I get some that we're to protect. I get where the, the purpose of these statutes is to protect the public fisc and yada yada. It, you know, I, I, I it really gets kind of tiresome um, if the police are just you don't have to do your job. Uh, and you can do it badly and expose people. I mean, I get that the deceased here is no angel. Okay. The law right. enforcement, if you're going to, informants never are angels. That's why they can be informants. But there's two other people, one one other killed and one other, again, you're, you're, put, you're putting a lot of people in the, in the place. And again, like you said, time, place, and manner was known here. It's not like there was just some random rumor that's, you know, somebody random was going to be, right. you know what I mean? Like this. They is, knew exactly who the, it was. They knew it. And they knew why they were going to be there because this guy was an informant that they dropped off at the house and, and somebody found out he was an informant. I mean, that's yeah. horrible. Really not good. So that brings us to our prediction sure to go wrong for this week. Um, 
I think we kind of have tipped our hand as to where we stand. I think Horizon West gets affirmed. Right. And I think that Atchison Hotels gets digged, mooted, some way that they're not going to reach the standing issue um, in some configuration. They don't, I don't, and there's a number of ways they could do it. Um, those would yeah. be the two most uh, obvious ways that that could occur. But yeah, they're not going to actually hear that. They're not going to actually decide the issue that's presented, the question presented. They're not, and and uh, I agree. It's gonna it'll be addressed, maybe dig, but you know everybody expected last year in Milligan when the when the North Carolina court changed its mind or changed its position was no Milligan was no no Milligan is Alabama. Um, I forget which one is is North Carolina, more, but I know which case more, you're talking more 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 of her, yeah and, and more everybody, of her expect, everybody expected a dig, and now they came down and and yeah. uh, again an important topic. So. The, 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 who knows? This case may get digged, or it may get. We, we may be surprised, but somehow or another, I don't think they're going to reach the the standing question either. That's right. That brings us to the rule of the week. Apropos of your comments on taking cases, Dan, why don't you tell us about the rule of the week? Yeah, this is. Uh, we've talked about this rule before, but it's the rule of four. There's there's two rules in in the Supreme Court. Uh, Justice Brennan, uh, former Justice Brennan, used to say the most important rule was the rule of five which meant that whatever five justices on the Supreme Court of the United States decide is the law of the land. And uh, again, we we, we uh, referred to Milligan, which is the Alabama case. And again, that's an interesting case that um, we, we've talked about, Pat and I. It's a 5-4 decision, and, and that was part of our conversation last Thursday as well. Uh, but to, to even the justices that uh, were in dissent in that case they issued an order denying the petition from Alabama in that case. Uh, the way that the cases get uh, decided or, or get heard by the Supreme Court of the United States is they have conferences. The first big conference is the Thursday before uh, the first Monday in October. Um, and, and what happens is they need at least four justices on all their discretion, discretionary uh, docket, which is most everything these days. The rules have changed over the years about what's discretionary versus mandatory uh, for, for the court to decide. Other than original jurisdiction cases, everything is pretty much discretionary these days. But in any event, you need four justices. And there's a lot of talk about why cases, why you, you don't even get four justices sometimes to hear a case. And there's many reasons. Uh, one of the uh, things is is that sometimes if you're, even if you're in this uh, current uh uh, uh, conservative uh, six-person majority, you, you may, in some of the cases, uh, fear, for example, that, that Kavanaugh and Roberts might uh, have a more moderate position, which has happened sometimes in the last couple of terms. And so, that was certainly the concern, I mean, at least among you know people, uh, uh, you know, about taking some of the gun cases, is right? you're pretty sure you had four, but did you have five? Because you didn't yeah. know where Roberts and Kavanaugh were going to. We're going to stand because you knew you had Thomas Gorsuch, Alito, and Barrett, but that doesn't get you. That doesn't get you a Bruin. You've got to have, yep. you know, you, you've got to get the other at least one of the other two. And now, as it turned out, they did get the other two. Uh, Bruin was six three, but that's the what was the concern prior to that? Do you really want to take? The, you really want to present these cases if they're going to come out the wrong way? And I would, I would, you, you speak of the gun cases, Pat. I would commend people to read about Heller and McDonald back in the mm-hmm. day as well, because there were a lot of fights about whether to, again, petition the court at that time with swing voters and Anthony Kennedy, and a lot of, a lot of debate about that. Because, as you said, there was concern that 
you might not like the result you got, and then you're stuck with it, right? In the same, and, and so and, yeah, the, and the example, the the best example I can give is once you have a case come down, then you get what happened with Roberts in uh, June Medical. Yeah, is he says we just decided this. I don't have to like it. I don't like it, but it's stare decisis, and I'm following it. Right. And so if you get the bad ruling, even if you have a change in the composition of the court, it doesn't have the kind of impact that uh, and it's the reason why the Dobbs decision is really five, four or four, four, one is yep. because Roberts is not all on board with, uh, you know, that's that's what you end up with. And so even 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 when uh, Justice Ginberg, I'm sorry, five, I'm sorry, five, three, one. Yeah, Maybe right. Right. Five, yeah. Five, three, one is what I meant. And, you know, even when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was still alive and there were four Democrats, you know, on, uh, on the court, more liberal, liberal, um, they had concerns, too, because sometimes some cases they might want to hear the case. But again, be careful what you allow to get in the court. Because you, you weren't sure what Kennedy was going to do. Right. Right. And so Kennedy that, was that, not among those four, even though he oftentimes voted with them or O'Connor, for that matter. You, you know, also a Republican appointee, but you didn't know what. They didn't know what they were going to do. That's why they were swing voters. Yeah. Swing voters. So, so it's often interesting because on in some cases that people think would be taken by the court, uh, again, there's seven to 8,000 petitions a year. Um, in most cases, unless one of the justices, sometimes Thomas or sometimes others, uh, both, on both sides of the aisle, will issue a disagreement with denial of cert. But the, the reality is, is that we never really know the votes. It's not like we say okay, this only got three votes or two votes or whatever, or uh, whatever. Uh, when they go to the conference, we don't really get the inside scoop of why uh, they do this. And the other, th- the, the final thing I'll say in this rule is that sometimes with, for example, uh, Dobbs and with Bruins and some of the other cases, what you see is that these cases get carried over from conference to conference to conference. They get pushed back. And the reason for that is because, again, there may be, three people that really want to hear the case or again they're trying to debate and get kind of a feel for what the what the justices views are on these cases and so um oftentimes you um you'll see that where it goes from from conference to conference i think dobbs was was carried over 10 or 12 uh, consecutive conferences something like that there's been many cases and then eventually they do get granite um and that's part of why you see that is that they're trying to figure out who they have. If they do take the case, they want to make sure they at least have a kind of a sense, but it's not guaranteed that they have five votes to go their way eventually. And, and I'll give you another example where the uh, the court carried, uh, you know, 12 or so qualified immunity cases for a long time. This was several years ago. They kept carrying these, these, these uh, cases and, the hope amongst those that aren't a fan of qualified immunity is, is that they were going to take one of these cases or maybe more than one of them or consolidate them together or something. They ended up denying them all. Right. So it was like, okay, well that was, that was kind of frustrating. And that probably happened because there's two justices that have said they're in favor of changing qualified immunity doctrine, Sotomayor and Thomas. And they couldn't, they, they likely couldn't get their friends to come along. Um, yeah. You know, normally people think of Thomas and Alito being somewhat aligned. Not on this issue. <laughs> Not on this on issue the, at all. You you raise a you raise another interesting. This isn't the rule of the week. We're kind of rambling now, but one of the things that that is very interesting is on these criminal cases. Oftentimes, Sotomayor 
Andrew Kagan will be aligned with Alito on on and 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 sometimes with uh, with Thomas. I mean, there could be two or three or four of them in agreement on these criminal defense cases and uh, Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment types of cases. Yeah, one of my favorite uh, bits. This came out during the. Uh, uh, remember the whole controversy about trying to get the the iPhone open of the people that had the mass shooting. There was this cartoon about uh, you know we want. I'm from the FBI. Apple, open the phone. Apple says no. Uh, because that you need a warrant and this is what's required. What pinhead wrote that? Antonin Scalia. Uh, you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> just to put it on the other side of things where he was on the Fourth Amendment, Scalia was a great friend of the, I, I, I don't mean, was oftentimes supporting the criminal defendant in Fourth Amendment cases because he had a very narrow view of, of, uh, of, or had a very expansive view, I should say, of the warrant requirement and, 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 and what probable, what was sufficient to, to get a warrant and, and the, and the exceptions that the court has created. Um, yeah. So he was the, he was the liberal pinhead who said uh, that you had to get, uh, um, you had to actually have probable cause to, to be able to get into that thing. So yep. there we go. Um, anyway, so with that, we've rambled on quite a while. Uh, we'll take our leave. We'll see everybody next week. Hopefully we have three arguments, but uh, I hope everybody has a great week. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast We will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.